Oscar Combs here, and I want to put one rumor to rest, once and for all. The story is that Rafferty's goes all out for sports fans. And let me tell you, it's absolutely true. Confirmed. And fans love Rafferty's right back because the food is so terrific. Serve fresh. Serve fast. Serve friendly. Lunch or dinner. Rafferty's menu is jam-packed with all your favorites. Steaks, prime rib, chicken, ribs, delicious dishes and generous sizes that really satisfy the appetite. So come hang with the sports crowd at Rafferty's. It's the tastiest place in town. One of the most influential and polarizing individuals in college athletics is not a coach, not an athletics director, not even the president of a university. He was a former baseball player, a former broadcaster, a politician, and a dynamic leader when it comes to college athletics, the University of Kentucky, and even the state of Kentucky. This is the story of Jim Host and how he changed the landscape of sports marketing on the collegiate level. You're in for quite an education. We'll start in the early days with Mr. Host broadcasting high school games with Claude Sullivan and eventually working his way up to be a color analyst broadcasting University of Kentucky football games and becoming a pioneer in collegiate sports marketing. And along the way, you're going to hear some of the names that you are familiar with. Kaywood Ledford, Joe B. Hall, Lute Olson, Rick Pitino, P.J. Carlissimo, Hal Mummy, Tubby Smith, and many more. Mr. Host will take us behind the scenes on some of those decisions that were made concerning the coaches at the University of Kentucky. I'm Bo Robinson inviting you to listen in for the next 80 minutes on Conversations with Oscar Combs and Jim Host. You think you know the real story? Think again. Jim, big name in Kentucky throughout your lifetime. You once ran for Lieutenant Governor, worked under Louis Nunn, ran with Tom Emerton, and uh, Nunn Nickel probably kept you from being in politics the rest of your life. Well, it was a good good favor, uh, as it's turned out, because if I had won, I probably would have been in politics the rest of my life, and I wouldn't have ever been able to have built the company we built. And so, uh, although at the time I lost, uh, it devastated me because I never lost anything. Uh, I'm glad I did. So when you left politics, you formed Jim Hostin Associates, you got back to maybe a love that you had divorced for a while that you picked up at UK when you were going to school and radio broadcasting. Uh, we, um, when I was in school, uh, I uh, was under Len Press, who ended up founding KET. And he uh, discovered early on that I had a unique ability to uh, be a pretty good broadcaster. And so I started uh, working with Ernie Coyle, uh, who was uh, who did play-by-play for the university radio station and learned under him as a freshman. Then he graduated, and then I started doing play-by-play uh, on the university radio station when I was a sophomore. West, and that was when now? 1956. And Wes Strader, who ended up going to uh, become a great Hall of Fame broadcaster for Western Kentucky, started working with me. And... Uh, uh, there were a number of uh, people who have gone on to broadcasting careers who worked at the station then. And we did news. Uh, we uh, did uh, uh, 
uh, jazz records. We did a lot of uh, stuff to learn how to operate a board, to learn uh, about television, to learn about radio. And I started doing high school games uh, with Ted Grizzard, the pinch hit uh, for Claude Sullivan. Claude uh, was doing UK Standard Oil. There were no exclusive rights for UK in those years. So uh, Claude heard me on one of the university radio games, and he called me and asked me to come to VLK. And I met him. I met Ted Grizzard uh, and uh, met Artie Kay and uh, Hal Rogers, and I became disc jockeys uh, on VLK. The congressman. The congressman. he was the afternoon disc jockey, and I was the evening disc jockey in, uh, in my senior year in college, and he was in law school. Uh, but I started doing a lot of high school stuff with Ted because Claude was on the road, and Claude would come in and critique my tapes and uh, teach me about uh, preparation and what you had to do in order to really be a good broadcaster was preparation. Claude was the greatest preparer I ever saw in my life for any broadcaster he was uh he would work hours on little tiny things tips of broadcasting tips of of, i I used to take the media guide and follow with him and he would go through and look for a crazy statistic that had to do with lsu (laughs) if we're playing lsu or old miss we're playing old miss i spent a lot of time around coach rupp uh got to know coach rupp really well and of course i played for harry lancaster in baseball, baseball so i I got to know him sometimes too well, and uh, and uh, but I just became so ingrained uh, with uh, this program and with uh, what it meant to me. There were only five thousand students then, and uh, you think about the size of it today. You think about Lexington being fifty thousand people. You think about the railroad tracks running down through. Vine Street, you think about I used to take the train from Ashland to come here and then walk to the campus. Didn't have a car, uh, didn't didn't drive. Uh, so in the 50s, you come to the campus, and at that time, up to that time, there was no such thing as a radio network within the school. When you went throughout the South, sometimes there were two, three, four, five stations carrying the Kentucky games. We would have five broadcasts, and we used to go on the road, and now, now I'm going past – uh, the student station, and uh, when I was uh, uh, when I when I uh, got out of school, I played a year of pro baseball, and I uh, in the White Sox system, and I blew my arm out one night uh, trying to throw too hard, and uh, came home expecting to go back and play the next year. And while I was home, I worked uh, for FKY in Frankfurt, and uh, I was doing the games with John Duvall. Uh, who ended up playing or going to Channel 18 as general manager. And Garvis Kincaid heard me. And uh, so, and he owned uh, FKY and Abstentia. Now, what that means is that you couldn't own more than seven <laughs> radio stations in the country. So, what Garvis did is he put WWKY Winchester, WKY. Uh, uh, Richmond, uh, WHIR Danville, FKY in Frankfurt, and Frankfurt, and other, other people's <laughs> names. And uh, Kenny Hart uh, had the one in Frankfurt in his name, FKY, and I was doing the games there. So Mr. Kincaid called me, and he said, uh, host be in my office tomorrow morning, 9 o'clock, period, boom. And so I went back to Kenny, and I said, uh, Garbage Kincaid, he, what did he call you about? I don't know. So he, uh, he called me in his office, and he said, uh, a guy by the name of Jack Baker, who I had never met and still haven't met, 
got drunk on the air. He was uh, he was a uh, color analyst and the play-by-play announcer for the Kentucky Central Network, which had just started, was D. Huddleston, and uh, the senator, the senator, and he had, he owned he he ran WIEL Elizabethtown, and so they they I became his color man halfway through the football season, 1959, uh, and I'm still doing high school stuff with Claude, uh, but I'm doing. Kentucky Central Network, because Garvis had just bought Kentucky Central Insurance in Anchorage, and he had determined that the way to really spread the word about Kentucky Central would be to do this network in the state. So uh, now the football season's over, and Dee said, Jim, I don't want to travel uh, doing basketball. He said, you need to do the basketball network. So I started doing Kentucky Central Network, and I did the play-by-play, color, the engineering, I would set everything up myself, carry all this stuff in, and then hook up lines, and then go up on the payphone, and then uh, open the payphone and come back down and go wolf plus one, wolf <laughs> plus two, uh, and to be able to. <laughs> now, by the <laughs> mid fifties, you had several radio stations doing it, but among them, you had two names to surface, and that was, of course, Cloud Sullivan uh-huh. and Kaywood Ledford. And well, and. and, and and J.B. Faulkner had been yes. the voice up until one year before that, and then Earl Boardman took over the National Network. And then you advance into the mid-'60s, and you're out doing other things by that time. Mm-hmm. And along comes by 66, 67, the university is trying to see how to bring everything in the house, mm-hmm. but they can't come to picking between Kaywood Ledford well, they did too. And Claude they, Sullivan. They did because uh, because Claude was doing Cincinnati Reds uh, games, so he couldn't do football. Uh, so they agreed that Kaywood would be the voice of football, and Claude would be the voice of basketball. And so the Standard All Network, uh, or Claude, became the voice. But then Claude uh, was struck with cancer and uh, had throat cancer. And uh, he went downhill in a hurry, and I was doing the network for him in basketball uh, in December of 67 Under with him asking, and I had to announce his death yes. over the network, which was one of the most devastating nights of my life. And uh, he died at 42. Uh, one of the greats of all time uh, was people talk about how good Kaywood was, and he was great. But I personally think uh, Claude was every bit as good. Uh, and uh, and Claude would, Claude did so much for me uh, in terms of uh, mentoring me and helping me and and doing what he did to help me understand uh, sports broadcasting. And when you went into Jim Host and Associates, I think within the first year or two, you went in and got the radio no, media I'll, rights. I'll, t- I'll tell you how it happened. Uh, there was a guy by the name of Don Wheeler who was the head of broadcasting for UK. Don Wheeler had worked with me at FKY in Frankfurt, and he had come to uh, to the university and became the director of WBKY. So he called me out of the blue, and he said, Jim, he said, there is a group uh, that owns the rights for UK uh, that is that are in New York, and it's, and, and it's a G.H. Johnston agency. And he said they own rights for other schools in the South, and they put together a Pickadexy network and so on. Why don't you bid on the rights? And I said, uh, okay. Uh, how much are you getting now? And they said forty-four thousand dollars. And I said, uh, well, uh, what do I do? And he said, well, we'll send you an RFP, and 
you bet on the RFP. 51,887. That's right. 51. And somebody asked me, he said, well, where did the 51,887 come from? I said, well, I'm figuring that he's, if somebody knows I'm betting they're going to be over 50, so I'll go a little bit over 50. And then if I go over 51, then I'll go a little bit over 51. That's, and that's the magic that now, now I, now I get it. All right. Except I got to have a bond. Well, I don't have $51,887 put up, so I go see Jake Graves at the bank, who had been my financing guy, and I told him what I needed. He pulls out his desk drawer, fills out the form for me. He said, I've got faith in you, and I believe you're going to make it. And he was the one that was helped me guarantee the first-year rights fees. Now, about that same time, they're starting to work on Rupper, and it finally comes around in 76, 77. No, that's not how it happened. Uh, the the uh, before the radio rights happened, uh, I had 107 bucks in my in the bank. I lost a campaign for lieutenant governor. I had been in the real estate business, insurance business, and house building business. You had, had to hit on something pretty had, soon. I had saved all that money, but spent it all on a campaign. Spent it all, and uh, thinking I was going to win, and I didn't win, and I had no money, and uh, didn't tell my wife how bad it was. Uh, had 107 bucks, had two kids at home and a car payment, two car payments and a house payment, and no money and no income. Now, I'm, I, I go into Ray's Barbershop, which is right across from Henry Clay High School. It's still there. And Ray Tuttle said, I bet you need an office. I bet you need some help. And I said, yep. And so he, he let me rent the space above the barbershop. Uh, and uh, it was a big old uh, room had a light bulb from the ceiling. And uh, so that's where I started. And Was I that asked, on East Main? On East Main. It's still, no, Walton Avenue. Oh, wow. It's right across from, it's, it's still there. Uh, the barbershop just closed. But uh, uh, I asked if I could use a pay phone because I didn't want to put a deposit up for a phone, $67. <laughs> and so I came down and the mayor and a county judge called, and that was Bob Stevens and Foster Pettit. And they said, we'd like to buy you lunch. Well, I thought that was great. And so they bought me and they said, we want you to be the first executive director of the Lexington Tourist and Convention Commission. And I said, how much does it pay? And they said, $18,000 a year. I said, do I get a car? Yep. Do I get a secretary? Yep. I said, uh, all expenses pay up. You can hire my company. Well, what's the company? Jim Host and Associates. I didn't have any associates. <laughs> <laughs> and, so, and so I went down to the bank to Jake, who I owned the $76,000 and $887 loan. And I said, uh, Jake, I got my first client. And uh, I gave him the check to put in my account. And he pulled out his desk drawer, pulled out a deposit book with carbon paper in it. And he said, you're going to need some capital. And uh, he said, uh, I'm going to fill this out for 10000 You don't have any interest to pay for six months. And uh, that's how I got started. And, uh, and uh, to this day, uh, I still call Jake, keep in touch with him, because it, it, if you can imagine what that meant. Well, so I represent the Tourism Convention Commission. The first meeting, they tell me, here's why we hired you. The tracks are going through downtown. We've got a year to build a civic center on the end. Uh, the Civic Center, if we don't build it, we're going to lose $3 million of in-kind urban renewal funds, and you've got to come up with a way to build a Civic Center. Well, I had known what uh, Executive Inn had done on land where Freedom Hall was because of in-kind uh, of the land, so I said, uh, okay, I can do this. 
And so I, that was my second account, another $1,500 a month with Election Center Corporation. And we had our meetings in Garbage Kincaid's boardroom at the top of Kentucky Central Building. And uh, out of that came Rupp Arena and so on. So that's how all that happened. So, so a little bit before that, though, you started getting involved with UK Athletics. Well, the, the, the bidding of the radio rights came in 1973, 74. Right. And so my first year was 74, 75. Right. And, and during that period, it didn't necessarily start that way, but week by week, month by month, your phone began to ring more and more from UK Athletics, people in athletics, uh, yeah. because of what you had done downtown. Uh, yeah, uh, I guess you can probably say that, uh, but it was more them wanting to make sure they had input into Rupp Arena uh, and, uh, and, and I was consistently going over there and meeting first. I met with coach Lancaster and I said, I've got an idea about how to build an, an arena. Uh, there was a group called the alley cats, which, uh, had to do with, uh, DeWitt Heisel, uh, Eb Ray, uh, Roy Holsclaw, a number of people like that who had been raised in Cain over a period of time that didn't have seats at Memorial Coliseum. And, and so I went to Coach Lancaster and said, I believe we can solve the Alicats issue by building the arena downtown. And he said, it'll be too big. You'll never fill the seats and so on. And he said, but I'm not going to approve this. You've got to go see uh, Dr. Singletary. So we went to see Dr. Singletary. And it was the most difficult, one of the most difficult negotiations uh, I've ever been through. And we finally, with Dr. Singletary, okay. it finally he finally agreed to agree on the basis that it wouldn't cost the university any rent. They could keep the money they were making at Memorial Coliseum, and we could then charge an additional rent over and above that, which is how we got 14% uh, in the first year of the agreement. And remember, the tickets were only $5 then. Uh, that so, is correct. So, so uh, that's how it was done. It was, um, uh, And then the university got involved after the fact, I mean, it was all done in negotiation with Dr. Singletary and Coach Lancaster. So, so in '74, when you really got involved over there, the coach in, in basketball was Joe B. Hall. That's right. And the coach in football was Fran Kersey. That's right. And it was during this period that, uh, if memory serves me correctly, uh, Fran Kersey mentioned something to you or to Ralph Hacker or Ralph Gabbard, one like, you know, they got a coaches show out there in Oklahoma. Yep. Except, what can you do it was, for me? except it wasn't from with me. Uh, what uh, Fran did is he he got Ralph Gabbard to do the television coaches shows and 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 Ralph agreed to let Fran keep the money on the uh, uh, the trailer tra the, tra the things that went across the screen and uh, and then he went to Hacker and Hacker agreed uh, to let Fran keep a portion of the revenue on the radio show. And, and Ralph said, I'll sell it for you. And so that's how to, I wasn't involved in either the other, the other than they used our network. Yeah. Uh, I wasn't involved in any of the revenue or any of the stuff on the radio network or the, I mean, on the coaches shows. Uh, and I didn't get involved until Jerry Claiborne got hired. And the reason I got involved in that is because we had sold, I had sold Coca-Cola big deal. Uh, when it and, went to the NCAA? No, 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 no. This okay. had to do with UK. I'd sold them a big deal. And so on the sideline, 
Coach Claiborne had sold Pepsi. <laughs> there were Pepsi cups on the sideline. And so the Coca-Cola guy's with me in the, up in the press box, and he's pointing, what's that all about? And so I then went back to uh, Harry, and I said, wait a minute. I mean, not Harry, I mean Cliff. Cliff was the AD then. And went back to Cliff and said, look, we can't have that. And that's when we started talking to them about the bundle rights, about uh, well, about keeping all the television show and a radio show and everything under one umbrella. That's how that started. And, and But also during that period, they started realizing for the first time to pay our coaches what we need or need mm-hmm. or have to pay them. Yep. Uh, and they didn't want to go out and wing it on their own. Uh, for a long period of time there, they allowed coaches to cut their side deals and it didn't go through the university. That's right. And at a point in time, they were looking for you to bring that together so they would have some oversight. Well, I told them that uh, I wasn't going to give them the kind of money I was giving them for uh, radio and television uh, stuff without getting all of this under control. And I went to Ralph and Ralph, uh, Ralph Hacker, Ralph Gabbard, uh, uh, two guys that uh, uh, became and to this day are still some of my closest friends. I went to both of them and I said, guys, we need to pool our resources. Uh, and Ralph Gabbard, and I wrote Ralph Gabbard into the contract, uh, which I'll explain that a little bit, uh, and then wrote Ralph Hacker into the contract having to do with uh, radio. And uh, that was written in the contract with UK, and then we got UK to bid the rights, not where they always used to send an RFP out on television, buy it separately and program separately and everything else. I got them to put it all into one big bundle, and we bid been on one bundle, and the first time we did that was 74-75. So we go a little bit farther along the line, and when it gets time for Joe B. Hall to leave and be replaced, and for that matter, Fran Kersey too, uh, they have to look to you for that extra income. At the same time, you're saying, if I'm putting this money in this position, I want to know who you're hiring. Uh, well, yes and no. Uh, I never dictated to them who they hired, but they would bring who they were hiring to me to talk to me. Uh, and I never refused anybody. I never said this person isn't the right person or anything. I never will forget uh, CM bringing Hal Mummy uh, to our house. house. And uh, Pat and I uh, met uh, Hal and June Mummy in the basement, and, uh, and there wasn't anything that Hal wouldn't agree to he was so happy to be here he was he, this lifetime opportunity lifetime opportunity for him and he couldn't have been nicer couldn't have been better well that lasted about uh, about a year or two years until uh, i told him one part of the deal was he had to speak every year as every coach had done since beginning of time at the rotary club uh every football coach and every basketball coach and having been a Rotarian and and uh, I was the one that always go pick up the coaches. I did it with Coach Rupp and would take him to the Rotary Club and introduce him. And so I told Hal, and then one day Hal decided he was going to take me on, I guess. And he just uh, had uh, Jeanette Owens call me and say, uh, Hal's not going to make it today. And I said, what do you mean he's not going to make it today? Well, he's busy. And I said, okay. So I went out to the Rotary Club, and I stood in front of him, and I said, Coach Mummy's decided that the Rotary Club's not important to him, so he's not here today. I'll be glad to give what I think he might say. And I said it, and from that day forward, I had nothing to do with Coach Mummy. And, of course, 
as I told uh, CM uh, later on, uh, I just felt like Coach Mummy was going to get him into difficulty and had some real issues with him. I thought he was a genius offensive football coach, uh, uh, but Mike Major certainly wasn't any defensive coach, but he was a genius offensive coach. And, uh, yeah, I, I was – you can say I was deeply involved because the amount of money we were paying uh, to coaches, which came under the guideline – and in those years, we would pay the coach separately, but the university knew about it. They, they understood everything in the contract. They understood everything was involved. Then I got to universities, and I started doing this in Texas, and I started doing it at other schools, getting them to bundle all the rights into one bucket so that they paid the coaches so that they were in control, and there was institutional control of the coaches. Because we were the first people to do that uh, because I always felt when you pay in, when a media rights holder is paying a coach separately, there's no institutional control uh, over that. The institution needs to pay the coaches. Uh, let's go back to the first coach you had to deal with being fired, uh, and I think that was Fran Curse in your particular situation. Did you have to come up with the kind of money like we're told today that if Kentucky lets Mark Stoops go, they're going to have to write out a check for $15 million? Uh, that had nothing to do with me. Uh, they, they, But, I mean, did your contract give you wiggle room to get out of it if he was fired? No. Uh, what we did is we paid him an agreed amount of money for the year he was here. But if he got fired, he didn't get any money from us. So the contract was only good as long as he had the job. Exactly. What do you remember most about the Kersey era? Uh, I thought he was a heck of a coach. Uh, I thought that he was even a better recruiter. And uh, to be able to have uh, Derek Ramsey and Art Still as a package coming from Camden, New Jersey, is uh, I think when you think about how good that team was and uh, and and how great they played that one year, uh, I remember going to Baylor and seeing Rod Stewart go down with his uh, leg, and I'm thinking, boy, this could be a long year. And then uh, we go to Georgia, and Prince Charles is there, and at halftime the crowd leaves because we're whipping the crap out of them. And then we go to LSU, and Art Still picks that fumble up and takes it the rest of the way to score. And we were so dominant. I can't remember Derek Ramsey ever getting inside the 20 and not scoring. He would take it in himself. Yeah, if it was less than three yards or less, it was his. It was his. And he was such a great leader. And, uh, you know, I think that's one of the things that uh, uh, these current teams miss is that kind of individual. Derek was an unbelievable leader of that team. Now, now you were a politician early on. How do you recall looking back? There was a lot of uh, political talk about Fran losing his job and things that weren't then and because of John Y. Brown, who literally was involved in bringing him to Kentucky when he was hired. And, of course, the famous story is final game, he beats Tennessee and Johnny Majors, and he's on the field with an overcoat that's down to his ankle. And the story is is that the night that he got the job at Kentucky in 72, December 72, John Mike brought him into the airport. It was December. He came in a short sleeve shirt. It was too cold outside. He loaned him his overcoat, and he never gave it back to him. And on his final day, he went there. A lot of people said that was payback because he did not endorse John Wife for governor and that Joe Hall had endorsed Terry McBrayer. I know nothing about that. Uh, I, I, if that was the case, I was oblivious to it. Uh, I'm... Uh, 
I'm a close friend of John Wise today. I'm a close friend of McBrayer's today. Uh, I'm, uh, <laughs> I understand. <laughs> uh, I, I just, I, I just don't know anything about that, truthfully. Uh, let, let's go on to, um, well, let's just stay with the coach, Jerry Claiborne. Jerry was the most straight arrow of any football coach that I've ever seen coach here or maybe coach any place. Uh, he was, uh, the kids loved him. He worked them hard. He was, I never heard him ever utter a curse word. Uh, he came to me to help him form the Federation of Christian Athletes, uh, which we did. Uh, I love Jerry Claiborne. I uh, love Faye. Uh, they were such great people. Uh, if you really think about the fact that we were always competitive. Uh, I mean, we were in every game, and uh, the one thing, thing the other team always said is, Kentucky hit you harder than anybody else. We never got across the – you know, we never got across to, to really become great, but we certainly were competitive. Um, Bill Curry. The Bill day... Bill's the greatest speaker that I ever heard as a as a coach, uh, and I got to be real close to him. And uh, as... I, were you the one that introduced him to the I was. fandom? And at that day, yeah. they presented him with him with something his first day here. Yeah, I don't the Bobby know. Dodd Award. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. Uh, Bill, Bill had been at Alabama, and we were doing Alabama stuff. And uh, and uh, uh, Hootie Ingram uh, said to me that uh, he knew that Kentucky needed a football coach, and he said, uh, do you think CM might be interested in hiring Bill Curry? And I said, why do you want to get rid of Bill Curry? He's, he's only lost one game all year or two games all year, and he's uh, going to be at the I think he was in the Sugar Bowl, or he's in one of the big bowls, and uh, he was in the top ten in ratings all year. and And he said he'll just never be accepted at Alabama because and because he was a Tech guy, and Georgia, and, uh, Georgia Tech, yeah, and Georgia Tech and Bobby Dodd and Coach Bryant had always been bitter enemies, and uh, so he just was never accepted there, and. Uh, so I said something to CM about uh, the fact that you could get Bill Curry if you want him, and he said, I don't believe that. And I said, well, why don't you call Hootie? You and Hootie are good friends, and call Hootie, and he did, and that's how Bill Curry got here, uh, is that Hootie said to me, he said, I think that uh, Bill would leave to take the Kentucky job, and he did. Now, didn't You know, I always thought when he came here that that would be the final piece if Kentucky could turn it around, and I think he really believed that he could turn it. Was there just a little bit too much optimism in in his ability to recruit or just not knowing that recruiting at Kentucky is different than recruiting at Alabama or Georgia Tech? Well, all I know is <clears throat> that he wanted Georgia Tech and he wanted uh, Alabama. And so I couldn't see if he could recruit. And certainly he had a great name. Uh, he was a terrific motivational speaker. He uh, was a great leader. He had a good staff. Uh, I have no idea to this day why he couldn't win here, uh, and uh, but he didn't. And and it was I remember CM saying to me it was one of the toughest things he ever did uh, to let him go because uh, Bill was such a good person and uh, and uh, his wife was such a good person. You know she was a professor here, a PhD. Carolyn Curry wrote has written a number of books, and uh, they all got you know Pat and my wife and Carolyn Curry and Evelyn Newton took trips together uh, and uh, so we were very close to the Curry family I saw the kids grow up uh, still are, still are close to them 
but I, he just didn't win. And it became obvious the last couple of years that he wasn't going to get it done, and CM had to make a change, and he did. And I think that's probably one of the toughest things CM ever did. And that last year was the first year of Tim Couch. Yeah. And had the misfortune of having Elliot Uselet. Well, I, that was something that I think if Bill had to do all over again, he he would obviously. But Elliot was so set in his ways, and he had that that uh, double tight end offense that uh, was pulled in, and he wasn't ever going to spread the field. And uh, you couldn't you couldn't have Tim Couch, a pro type quarterback who had a great arm, uh, with that kind of offense, and. Uh, so it was unfortunate, and I think Bill. I think if Bill had to do over again, he would have made a change right then, and he put somebody else in charge. But he didn't. And as you said, that was a uh, very tough decision for CM. But then comes perhaps the most controversial decision in the CM Newton legacy at Kentucky by going down and hiring a coach at the level you did and Hal Mummy. Yeah, but it turned out to be. Uh, the right decision because he, uh, Hal was, uh, you know, Hal uh, played patino ball on, on uh, you know, three-point offense on grass. And uh, uh, and I think everybody, I think all of us loved the offense and uh, loved it. It was exciting to watch. And uh, and uh, uh, that's when we got introduced to uh, uh, to the kind of, of uh quick snap a lot of play offense that has become spread them out spread them out now and of course mike leach uh, was the first uh, first offensive coordinator that he had and think about what mike leach has done with that offense all over the country and a number of others have initiated the, what everybody calls the mummy offense uh, how was an offensive genius i don't think there's any doubt about it going back into your memory bank was kentucky ever close to hiring mike godfrey that year uh, I know some of us were really for hiring him. Because I know Rick Patino was. Yeah, well, I was too. Uh, I really liked Mike. Uh, he uh, he had done a heck of a job at Murray, and uh, he uh, was well liked. Uh, his uh, his uh, uncle uh, was uh, Joe was the AD at Southern Alabama, and I'd gotten to know him well, and. Uh, and Mike was a really good football coach, and I think we all felt, done well at Cincinnati. Still know Cincinnati. We all felt that he could really get it done here, but uh, uh, CM had another idea, and and it was how Mummy. And I don't think any of us knew anything about Mummy when he hired him. And then after Mummy, uh, you had Guy Morris that came in right into. Well, Guy was the offensive uh, guy. Had been hired by Hal and was with him at Valdosta State right. and uh, came here with uh, Guy to be the offensive line coach. And Guy had been a all-pro player. He, had, he spent uh, 11 years with the Eagles and four years with the uh, uh, New England Patriots and uh, had been an all-pro uh, offensive lineman. Uh, had uh, And one of the best guys, one of the best people, the kids loved him. He was... They all felt that if they learned from him, they would learn how to play pro ball, and he did a great job with the line. And so all the kids, when uh, when uh, Hal got fired because of Claude Bassett, uh, all the kids went to Larry Ivey and were begging him to take Guy. And, and, and Larry made the decision on Guy. And, uh, and uh, I'll never forget as long as I live, uh, 
them pouring the Gatorade on Guy and Jim Bunning sitting next to me in our box at the end up there. And LSU game. LSU game, and they're pouring Gatorade on him, and Bunning saying to me, it's not over yet, and uh, we've they, LSU's got the ball right in front of us on the 10-yard line. No way they can score with uh, 14 seconds left to go in the game, and, and that guy goes back and throws the ball, Hail Mary, and the ball tips, 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 and a guy catches it and goes in and scores uh, for LSU, and uh, and I think if if Kentucky had won that game, Guy Morse would have stayed here as the football coach for a number of years. Well, now he was here another year after that. He was, uh huh. And, and he won. And he won. I mean, we had a winning record that next well, year. Well, not no, he had a losing record. At Seven and five. Well, well, that's oh yeah, that's well, that was a year of the LSU game. Yeah. So he gets bumped up from four hundred thousand to eight hundred thousand. Uh-huh. And he's got the full title. Yeah. And then he had the good run, the 7-5, and he decided Baylor came after him, offered him 1.2. Well, I think I think if uh, if uh, truth were known, um, I think – I know Guy really wanted to stay here. I know he really wanted to stay. And uh, at that point, uh, Mitch had been hired. Uh, Mitch called me uh, – Larry Ivey got fired by Lee Todd uh, one afternoon, and it went on the wires. And within 15 minutes, Mitch called me. And uh, I had worked with Mitch at Tennessee, uh, and his brother Eric was head of publishing for us for 13 years. And so I knew Mitch well and liked Mitch. He, he, we had had a good relationship with Tennessee. He was in charge of marketing. He had gone on to be AD at Oregon State. So he calls me out of the blue, and he said, Jim, he said, I really would like that job. Well, I knew Wayne Martin wanted it. I knew there were several others that wanted it. But I, I said, uh, Mitch, you're an SEC guy, and you've got experience. You've done a great job at Oregon State. You know, I'll, I'll send your name to Dr. Todd. And he said, I really would appreciate it. So I sent his name to Dr. Todd. I never heard from Dr. Todd one iota whether he ever interviewed him <laughs> uh, or I never heard from Mitch whether he got interviewed until the day before the announcement, Dr. Todd called me and he said, Jim, I've hired your guy. I said, who's that? And he said, Mitch Barnhart. I said, well, that's great. I'm glad to hear that. That's the last time I had any kind of relationship with uh, Mitch or with uh, Dr. Todd uh, as it relates to uh, him being hired as the AAD. I think Guy's wife had said if they had matched Baylor at 1.2 from 800,000, that guy would have stayed at Kentucky. I think he would have stayed. I, I don't think it was even that. I think it had to do with was he really wanted uh, and uh, could he have the relationship with Mitch that he wanted to have with an AD. And, uh, uh, you know, they had given him a four-year contract at Baylor and uh, had a lot more money. But I don't think – I think he so would have – more money wouldn't have made a difference. I think he would have stayed at 800 if indeed – the president of the university and the athletic director so, sat down with him and said, we really want you to stay and we're willing to give you a commitment from the university. In essence, then, he felt unloved. I think that was it. I mean, I, I, you know, I can't speak for him uh, yeah. today, but uh, but that's my opinion. Let's flip over to the other side and go with the basketball coaches. Your first coach when you were really, it was Joe B. Uh-huh. And he left in 85. Uh-huh. What do you remember most about that era? Well, uh, what I remember is that uh, uh, Kaywood uh, calling me uh, 
the uh, the night that it was going to happen, telling me that Joe was going to re- resign or retire. And uh, and he made it a point that night to say he wasn't retiring; he was resigning. That's right. That's right. And so um, uh, I, I was shocked by that because I, I didn't think Joe was ready to quit. Uh, to this day, I don't think he was ready to quit. I think there was something else that happened that caused him to uh, to resign. Uh, I don't know what that is. Don't know what it was. Uh, have my ideas, but uh, I have no confirmation of it. But um, uh, the guy who came with a whisper of getting a job was Lute Olson. Uh, Lute Olson uh, was had had the job committed to him. I ran into him at uh, knew him well. I ran into him at the Marriott. That now, Final this four is was why here. the Final Four was going on. That yeah. Final Four was going on. We were doing our Final Four show from the lobby of the Marriott. Uh, we did a, a selection of, of the Final Four on the Friday night before the Saturday event started, and we were doing it from the lobby of the Marriott. And I saw Lute walking through the hotel, and we were in a break, and I went over to him, and I said, it just took a guess. I said, how's your negotiations going? <laughs> and, and he started laughing. He said, how do you know about that? And uh, I said, well, I just have a feeling. And I said, you, you would be such a great choice, and this could be a dream job for you. And he said, well, he said, I'm uh, really giving it a great deal of consideration. What was a tip-off was Sid Dempsey was the AD at, at uh, Arizona then, and Sid Dempsey was part of the Division One Men's Basketball Committee, which uh, I worked pretty close with because we were doing all the NCAA stuff then. So Sed called me, and he said, are you involved at all in all of this stuff that's going on with money for him? And I said, no, I am not. Nobody's asked me anything about it. I, I just took a guess and uh, said of, of Lute, because I thought it was strange that he would be that pre- present in the lobby of that hotel then. I mean, I, I just he wasn't the type ever to do that sort of thing. I never saw him around the coach's headquarters shows that, that, uh, that much. And uh, so he was offered the job, and uh, and he went back and said, just up the ante, uh, so great. Uh, plus, uh, Lute's wife, uh, Bobby, was sick, and uh, and he didn't want to take the chance of moving her. And they had a they were a great couple, and so uh, so Cliff had to had to hire quickly, and he hired Eddie. Well, now, actually, for a very brief time, I happened to be there. That Sunday afternoon, you had the NAB All-Star game at the mm-hmm. Coliseum. At one point, he had accepted the job. And they were actually introducing him to the players at Wildcat Lodge around 2 o'clock on Sunday afternoon. Until he went home. Yes. Until he went home. Or when you say went home, until he went back to the Marriott. Until he went home. He went back to the Marriott, and then he went home, and then he called from there and turned the job yeah. down. That's what happened. Uh, you're and, right. You're right. He had accepted it, and uh, and he told me he thought he was going to accept it, but uh, and, and I thought it was I thought it was over. But supposedly he was having an issue with some reporters out in Arizona at the time, and he felt like that they weren't giving him a fair shake. I don't know anything about that, I, I, and that that sort of got resolved. Uh, also, at that weekend, there was a name. The name of Gene Bartow that kept popping up before they ultimately ended up with Eddie. I don't think he was ever. I don't think he was ever in the hunt. Uh, I, I heard his name as well. I think it was either. I think it was either Lute Olson or Eddie Sutton. 
I don't think uh, uh, Bartow was. He well, was know, a distant. I, I, he was I, a distant third or fourth. I can say this honestly because I happen to be it. I was in Denver that night that Joe quit, and on the top floor of the Sheraton that night where they were staying, Otis invited a group of people up there, and the only two media members there were me and Bill Reed, and there were eight or ten guys there, and they were tossing out the name. A lot of people were sort of shocked that it happened. And uh, Billy said, what about Eddie Sutton? And Otis Singer said he will never be the coach at the University of Kentucky because I know what happened at Auburn this year. And that was the time when Sonny Smith had quit in January because he was having a lot of heat. Then he went on a phenomenal run and got to the Sweet 16 and pulled it out. But during the meantime, Eddie called the chancellor at Auburn, who had been the vice chancellor in Arkansas, saying he wanted to be included for that job. Mm, I didn't know that. And he told him, says, listen, Eddie, you don't want to come here. You're going from one football school to another. So anyway, he said, I want to. Would you send me a letter that we can get things looked at? And he sent Eddie a letter, and Eddie took the letter in to Frank Broyles and said, if things don't straighten up, I'm going to leave. And Frank calls the guy at Auburn and says, what are you doing? You didn't even give me the courtesy call. He said, wait a minute. I didn't call Eddie. Eddie called me. Old Singletary said right there in front of Auburn, I mean, three, four of the fat cats, so to speak, were standing there, said it will never be Eddie Sutton. I'll be darned. I didn't know that story. Well, let's go on to uh, Rick Pitino. Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, first, before Rick, there was P.J. Carlismo. Oh, yes. And uh, uh, CM called me, and he said, uh, you and P.J. Are, are really good friends. And I said, yep, I really like P.J. And uh, he said, well. Who had just made the Final Four the year before. Was at Seton Hall, right. Yeah. And uh, so he, uh, and this was in 89, and he, he called me. He said, uh, would you pick P.J. up at the airport? And, uh, and he said, we don't want anybody to know he's here. So he... Uh, I brought PJ to my office, which is where most of these things went on, and CM was there, and we sat and talked to PJ for the better part of a couple hours. Then we went to lunch at Campbell House, and John Y was there, and uh, and uh, CM had asked John Y to join us for lunch, and John Y was putting the big sale on PJ, and then uh, CM asked me to take PJ back to the airport and kind of report back to him what I thought. Well, I was driving to the airport, and PJ said, uh, how late do the restaurants stay open here? <laughs> and I said, PJ, this isn't New York. You can't get dinner at 2 o'clock in the morning, which is what he was used to doing. And he said, oh. And I said, uh, look, uh, I really want your, you. You're perfect for this job. You talk about somebody can sell in eastern Kentucky with your humor. You can sell. And he said, I'm not sure I can sell in Kentucky. I've got too much New York in me. And he said, I'm just not sure I can sell in Kentucky. And I said, you can sell in Kentucky. There's nobody more Kentucky than I am. And I know you can sell. And uh, he looked at me and we went on a plane. And I said, look, if you're going to go back and use this as a lever point against Larry Keating, who was the AD then at Seton Hall, uh, that's fine. But do me the favor and CM the favor of calling us and telling us so we don't waste any time. He said, Jim, you're too good a friend. CM's too good a friend, I guarantee you. But I, and then his dad called me, who I knew well, who was the guy who ran the NIT. 
And uh, Mr. Carlissimo called me and he said, I hope you did everything you could to get my son to take that job. I think it's the gold standard. It's the gold standard of all basketball jobs. And my son, if he took that job, he'd be there forever because he's that good a basketball coach. And I said, I know that, Mr. Carlissimo. And Pete was his name. And uh, and uh, so I called CM and I told him about my call from Pete. And I told him about the fact that I said to CM, he's not going to take the job. Uh, he, uh, he, he likes New York too much, and I just don't think he's going to take the job. And he'll go back and lever Larry to get a little more money and stay there. Well, that's what he did. And he called CM, and he called me. To, to, and uh, to this day, I still talk to him. Uh, you know, every once in a while, but he didn't take it. So then CM, uh, uh, within a couple of nights, woke me up one night at midnight. And uh, he said, Jim, uh, can you come in tomorrow? I said, I think I got our coach coming. He said, have you talked to Gavin? And I said, no, I haven't talked to Gavin. And he said, well, Gavin and I have talked about Patino. I said, how are you going to get Patino? He's coaching the Knicks. He's still in the playoffs. I said, well, he and, and uh, the guy that was the general manager then didn't get along. Chicklets. No, 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 no. It was no, no. He was it. No, wasn't that? It was before him. Uh, and I'll think of it in a minute. But he said he, they have a horrible relationship. And he said, I think we can get him. And he said, but I really need your help. And I said, you mean money? And he said, I really need your help. And I said, money. And he said, yeah. And I said, okay. And so uh, somebody else brought him to the, my office. I, I didn't pick him up to the airport, but. Uh, he was I alerted the people downstairs that he was, and so CM and I sat with him for. This was a better part of four hours, I guess. And at the end of the time, uh, CM would say, "Rick, Rick kept saying it's not about the money," and Rick and CM would say across the table, "Rick, it is about the money." <laughs> and so he said, uh, uh, "I'll." Uh, I'll come for 450000 on top of what the salary is. And CM looked at me and said, can you come up with 450000 I said, well, we're on probation. I don't have any live television. And he said, can you come up with 450000 I really need you to step up. So I agreed, sitting there with him to come up. For, I had no idea how I was going to get it. But I agreed to come up with 450000 And Rick shook my hand, and on his way out the door, he said, I'm going to have Mitch Dukoff call you. Who's Mitch Dukoff? Well, he's a guy in Cleveland that's uh, that's uh, that's his manages manages manager. So within the next day, this guy said, "Jim, this is Mitch Dukoff from Cleveland. Rick told me he did a deal, but he ain't coming for four hundred fifty thousand. It's gonna be six hundred fifty thousand." I said, "Look, we shook hands. We had a deal." Jim, it doesn't make any difference. He's not coming for four hundred fifty thousand. It's six hundred fifty thousand. So CM called me, and again, he calls me, and it's one night about 11. Anybody knows me after 9 o'clock, my lights are out. And uh, so he woke me up, and he said, Jim, you've got to do this. I mean, this guy can turn this program around. I'll do anything you want me to do to help you and so on and so forth. I said, God, CM, we've never paid a coach more than $100,000 a year, ever, any place, any place in the country. And he said, Jim, I gotta have him. I gotta have him. He can he can turn this program around. So I agreed on six hundred and fifty thousand. Had no idea how I was gonna do it. And but I did it. And Al Bianchi's name we were looking Al for. Al Bianchi, that's right. That's yeah. the name. That's the name. But uh, so so Rick came and uh, and the first year he's there, 
God, I remember it like it was yesterday. I'm up in in uh, in New York at the National Football Foundation banquet, and somebody at Channel 27 has said something that's really teed off uh, uh, Rick. I, I don't to this day I don't know what it was, but Jerry Tipton calls me and he said, "Do you know what Rick just did?" No, I don't know what he just did. Said he said he owned the radio, he owned the television show, and. Uh, he would just move the show. He didn't like what the people were at Channel 27, and he would move the show. And Jerry said, what do you think about that? And I said, he doesn't own the show. We own the show, and we'll tell him where he's going to be on television. And that's what I said. So the headline in the paper next day is, host takes on Patino. <laughs> and, and that was the start of one of the most tumultuous years because Rick then started showing up at various places. So then I kept calling CM saying, I'm not going to pay you. And so, and so CM is going, it's going like this. So finally I figured out something. I figured out that if I gave Rick 15% of the profits, I might get him to show up. So I go to Rick and I said, Rick, I'll give you 15% of the net if, if, if you'll show up at various. Well, you don't have to do that. I get 650000 I said, I'm talking about 650000 plus, plus. And uh, so he starts showing up. And at the end of the year, I gave him a statement. He made an additional 15000 and change. So that meant the first year we made $100,000 on that thing by the fact of how we did it. Remember that mid-court show? And we would tape it and then show it back at 1 in the morning. And we made a boatload of money on that, and that's how we made it. And your final coach that you were heavily involved with, Tubby Smith. Best single human being I've ever been around in coaching, without question. Uh, as good a as good a person as I've ever met, uh, he was too good, uh, and because he couldn't get rid of assistant coaches, uh, and I would tell him, uh, but. He was so good, and I think he's one of the best bench coaches I've ever seen. I saw him do something uh, in 98 uh, when we were playing Krzyzewski at Tampa, and I'm sitting down with the NCAA crew, and he's right here. And he has – we're 18 points down, and this is something that uh, that Rick would have never done, I don't think. And he got – he said uh, to Wayne Turner, he said, we're going to spread the floor out, and you take Wojo one-on-one and kick it out to Evans and kick it out to Padgett. And we'll bury threes on him, and we're going to win. And he did, and we won, and went to the final four, and won the final four. And that that they talk about Tubby winning with Rick's players, yeah, but Rick would not have won with those players. And what do you think about him in Memphis? Shocked. Uh, I I I think it's probably a good place for him, but uh, I, I I don't know. Um, I'm. Uh, I think he did a great job at, at Texas Tech. I mean, if you think about it, that program was in so the bad toilet, and he did a great job. He's a heck of a coach. He is a really good coach. Uh, but um, I don't know. I mean, you know, we'll see. Jim, you were here in the early mid-50s, I should say, but in the early 50s they built a new arena for basketball, leaving the old alumni hall. I think it was 51. So it had been around three or four years when you got here. And one of the first things they did, uh, this come after the scandal up in New York when Rupp used to take his teams to New York, Chicago, occasionally to San Francisco, and he made the statement after scandal that he'd never go to Madison Square Garden again. And he came up with the UKIT, and they brought in some big, big teams 
went on for years and years, and it finally died around, I guess it was 1991. What do you remember about the UKIT, the players, and the fact that it's no longer here? First UKIT I saw was the undefeated team playing LaSalle and Tom Gola. And uh, I, I remember Adrian Doran's wife, Mignon, play the organ. And uh, I remember uh, how excited I was as a kid in high school to see this great team play in UKIT. The fact that Coach Rupp, you know, people talked about him having something uh, against uh, African-American. The fact is that he, he had Illinois play in the UKIT when they had, uh, had uh, African-American players. Um, and he had uh, St. John's with Solly Walker play in Memorial Coliseum when, when they had an app, when Solly Walker was an African-American. So, and he went to the Phoenix Hotel to tell Ted Hardwick, who was running the Phoenix Hotel, who told me that Coach Rupp came and uh, said, you will, you will house these African-American players, black players, uh, in the Phoenix Hotel, and you will let them eat in the Phoenix Hotel. Uh, so uh, the fact that people talked about Coach Rupp being uh, – uh, you know, so what I remember at UKIT was absolutely outstanding basketball, really great teams. I broadcast uh, for the student station uh, the UKIT when uh, – uh, or I'm sorry, I co- a call for Kentucky Central, the UKIT, when Jerry West came in 59 and got his nose broken, and it's the greatest single performance I've ever seen anybody ever have on the floor. Uh, and uh, and I remember North Carolina coming and playing in UKIT. Uh, and uh, so I, I, I was so sorry to see the UKIT die because I think it was something that was started here on campus. It continued at Rupp Arena. Uh, I remember Texas A&M coming in and beating us in the opening round, which well, Shelby, Shelby Metcalf was yes. a coach, and uh, and uh, uh, which was a bummer. But uh, but I love the tournament, and I'm sorry it's not here anymore. You know, during that time, that also was a coming home for a lot of Kentuckians for the Christmas break, and they would literally stay in Lexington Friday and Saturday, and then go into the mountains. For Christmas. Well, they never they never included the UKIT in the season ticket package. They would sell it as a separate package, which made sense because a lot of people could come see them then that couldn't see them during the regular season. And you didn't have the students. They would sell all the student tickets and and so on. So, uh, and it was it was festive. You know, we had Christmas music. Uh, you've had Christmas. You'd have the choral choir sing at halftime, and it was it was a special time and good for the economy. It sure was. Yeah. We, 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 we go on up into the 70s and 80s and 90s, and we keep fighting that fight of trying to get Kentucky competitive in SEC football. Uh, you, you played for many years. You played 10, league, uh, 10 game schedules with six league games. By the end of Jerry Claiborne's last year, you've gone to 11 games and seven league games, 11-game schedule. Two years later, I think it would have been 91 or 92, you went to eight league games and 11-game schedule, and you're trading a non-conference for a conference, which has been very difficult for Kentucky to win. Uh, There was a period there in 91, 92, 93 in that area there where a couple good friends of C.M. Newton's, probably were your good friends too, Tom Butters at Duke University, John Swafford, at North Carolina, 
two of the bluest bluebirds in the country with basketball, came up with the idea to invite Kentucky to the ACC. Well, well it, that didn't how it happened. Uh, how it happened was that I invited Tom Butters to play in the Pro-Am of the uh, Bank One Golf Tournament. And Tom uh, had been uh, the chairman of the Division One Men's Basketball Committee, and uh, he and I uh, established a very special bond. We were really, really close friends, and uh, CM was on a committee in those years. So uh, Tom had come up the previous year and played with me, and he was coming back to play again. And I had uh, Duke trustees at our house, uh, uh, the guy that owned the farm that Ken Ramsey owns now, uh, which was a standard bread farm at that time, and I'm losing his name here a minute, and I'll think of it in a minute. Uh, but he was uh, on the board of trustees of Duke, and he came to the house together with a number of other people uh, with, uh, with Tom. So the next year, uh, t- and Lynn Butters became a real close friend of Pat's, and uh, so Tom called me out blue, and he said, Jim, <clears throat> can you get a meeting set up with C.M. Newton uh, privately. And he said, I don't want anybody else to know about the meeting other than you. And I want you to sit in the meeting. I want you to know what I have to say. And uh, so I called C.M. and I said, Tom really wants to meet with you. He said, fine, I love Tom. And I'm, so we went back in one of the corporate partner tents and back in the quarter by ourselves. And Tom said, I am empowered by the ACC to bring you an invitation for Kentucky to join the ACC. There are eight teams, and he said this is the first time that Duke has agreed to an expansion of the conference, and we've gotten every other school to agree with the expansion of the conference. And I said, including North Carolina? And he said, yes. Including everybody else? He said, yes. I said, so there would be nine teams now? And he said, yes. And he said, we want Kentucky because geographical area, academics, uh, and uh, it'll be, we've already done the analysis. You'll pay less money in travel than you're paying in the SEC now, and it would be a perfect match for the ACC, and I have driven the bus on this, and I'm committed, and I want you guys to really think about it. And Sam looked at me and said, Jim, what do you think? And I said, I love it. I think it would be a great thing because we can win in football, and uh, we know we'll be competitive in basketball. And... Uh, what do you think Dr. Wethington would say? And I said, I don't know, but if you want me to go talk to him, I like the Charles. And I said, if you want me to go talk to him, I'm glad to. And CM said, well, okay. And we shook hands and that was it. So the next day CM calls me and he said, uh, Jim, I think we're barking up a wrong tree. Uh, and it wasn't the next day because we we're playing in a pro-am. So it was a week after that. And he said, I think we're barking up the wrong trees. He said, I think for us to go out of the SEC when our president, Frank McVeigh, was the first president of the SEC, and he said, uh, we've got such a long tradition in the SEC. I said, CM, do you want me to go talk to him? I, I'm, I mean, I just think this is a marriage made in heaven, and I think it would be a great thing for this institution, academically and all other ways. And I said, we're closer to Virginia. We're closer to uh North Carolina, we're closer to all these schools. And I said, they're great basketball tradition. And we don't have any basketball tradition in the SEC. And I said, we can be great basketball tradition. And we can win in football. And uh, so um, it obviously died because he went to see Charles. And Charles wasn't in favor of it. And that was it. Looking back at it? I still think it's a great idea. I, I I would say it. Of all the things that I saw happen in all of my years of Kentucky athletics, I think that was the best idea. Uh, 
because I think it. Look, I sat in a meeting with. I was we were doing all Florida State stuff, and I sat in a meeting with uh, Roy Kramer, uh, saying that uh, John Lombardi had agreed as the president of the University of Florida to allow Florida State to come in the SEC. Think about this one now. And they had grand, they had taken in Arkansas, and they were going to take in one other school. So they extended an offer to Florida State. And I'm sitting in the room with the president of Florida State, Sandy D. Berti, and uh, the AD was Bob Coyne. And everybody around the table was in agreement, and they called uh, Bobby Bowden in. And Bobby said, I'm not in favor of this. And they said, why? Because... I can win in football in the ACC. I can't win in football and like I've been winning in the SEC, and it was over. And Roy picked up the phone and extended an offer to South Carolina, and that was the same day. So uh, I've been involved in a number of those things, and, uh, and I just think about how things could have been different if Kentucky had been in the ACC. If that's the worst thing that's happened to Kentucky <laughs> and what could have been, what's been the best thing to happen at Kentucky in the last – 35 years um this is going to be a strange uh comment i'm about to make uh but as i look back uh pat asked me the same question not too long ago of all the years i've been around she said what's the uh, greatest thing that happened i said it was the worst thing that happened that became the best thing that happened and i said hiring rick to be the basketball coach uh here at the time we hired him to be uh, if that hadn't happened, I think we would have gone the way of UCLA in basketball. I don't think it would ever have come back. He did something that would that couldn't have been done, I don't think, by anybody else. He is a great uh, preparer. Uh, he's probably the – I've never seen anybody prepare a team like he prepares a team. I, I sat in a room with him one day, and we were playing Utah, and I saw him – said he stopped the film three or four times. Look at what's happened. There's – they stepping on Van Horn's shoe. Or he said, Van Horn can only go one way, so we're going to step on his shoe and cause him to go the other way. And Van Horn only got six points and Kentucky beat Utah. Now, that's how good he is. And, uh, of course, you know what he did by, I mean, that team. Think of that team. Uh, the Unforgettables. Think about Feldhaus and Richie and that group that just came down and rained threes. And it was so exciting. And then... Probably the single greatest night I've ever seen in Kentucky basketball was when Shaq and Stanley Roberts and undefeated, in, undefeated a in a conference came in and played Kentucky, and we went up by him by, what, 15 points in the first half and, uh, and uh, killed him with threes. And that place, to this day, I don't think that place has ever come unhinged like it did that in that game. That was... That was such a great game, so greatest uh, turning point I've ever seen because it could have gone the other way. Looking toward the future, obviously the basketball program is in good hands right now, but what do you see first, the future of Kentucky basketball, and then secondly, the future of Kentucky football? Well, uh, Cal Perry was, is obviously the <laughs> greatest hire of all time here um, to do what he's done with the program. Uh, he... Um, this is a great story nobody's heard before. Uh, Evelyn Newton's funeral. And I'm sitting in the first row, and somebody touches me on the shoulder. And it's Cal. When he got fired by the New York Nets, uh, uh, was the, and, it, and he got fired, he called me, and he said, Jim, and, he, and we have known each other since he was an assistant at Kansas, uh, and 
That's how far back we go. And we'd always see each other at the Final Four, and, and he's always been nice to me. And uh, so he, he calls me out of the boon. He said, I want a job in radio. I said, no, Cal, you're too good a coach. You need to be back in college coaching. And uh, so now he taps me on the shoulder, and he said, remember that conversation we had? Yep. He said, if anything ever happens at Kentucky, I'm here. I'm here. <laughs> you know, um, after he got fired, and I think he was when, when he was with Larry Brown for a little while in Philadelphia. Yeah, he went as, as he assistant. became an assistant. And Larry. and he spent some time, I think, with Martin Newton living with him. He was he was with Larry at Kansas. Yes, uh, first as a group as a grad yes. assistant. Yeah, and um, he was very close to CM. He very and close. the family. Yeah, and like you said, he was at Evelyn's funeral yep. here. Yeah. Uh, I bumped into him and to Rick both. They were standing talking to each other. I, I turned and looked and I said, I don't think I just seen what I saw. Yeah, yeah. He's uh Cal's the single best marketer I've ever seen in the history of college basketball. I've, there is no one that is as bright and talented he is in just marketing. Do you subscribe to the theory that when the job came open, when Tubby left and they hired Billy Clyde, that Cal was too hot for Kentucky to touch, and then the seat was too hot for them not to take him the second time around? Uh, all I know is that Dave Gavitt called me. I was in the lobby of the Hyatt Hotel in Atlanta, and he called me out of the blue, and he said, well, I talked to Rick Barnes. And uh, he said, Rick really wants the Kentucky job. And uh, so I said, where is he? And he said, well, he's in the lobby of the Hyatt. And I said, so am I. And We bumped into each other that day. Remember that day? With his star getting the Player of the Year award. Yep, and I went over, took him. We went over and sat on one of those bar stools over in the corner. And I said, well, if you want the job, why don't you go after it? And he said, Jim, I can't get to the AD. He said, they've got to Parker in the, in the middle. And he said, and I just don't want to deal with an agent. And... Uh, and I said, uh, well, I understand that. And I'll try to get the word to Mitch as well as I can, which I did. But for some reason, they never connected. Uh, I think Rick Barnes would have been a great selection here. I'm a great advocate of Rick Barnes as a human being, and uh, he would have been a great advocate. When, when Gillespie, let me finish by Gillespie, though. You need to know this story. Uh, uh, Gillespie gets hired, and I have no idea he's getting hired. Nobody else did. I get a call from Bill Byrne, who was the AD at Texas A&M. And he said, Jim, you've had your hand on everything, anything ever happened at Kentucky. Did you have anything to do with the hiring of, uh, of Gillespie? And I said, no. He said, that's good because he's the worst human being that I've ever – we're so glad to get rid of him. I put the phone down, and the phone rings again, and it's the lost Dodds from Texas. Jim. You've had your hand in everything, anything's ever happened at Kentucky and a lot of other places. Did you have anything to do with hiring Gillespie? And I said, no. He said, we're so glad to get him out of the Big 12. I can't tell you. Good luck with him. And he put the phone down. I knew we were in trouble. What happened to Billy Donovan in that mix when Tubby left? When we came off of the stage at the Final Four that year, Florida was in the Final Four, if you remember. And uh, and we went. You remember we had. Remember we always have that final four salute dinner on Thursday night. Mm -hmm. So I always go because I'm part of the you uh, the final four alumni group. They voted me on it when I when I uh, many years ago, and so uh, I sit with a committee. And uh, so Billy sees me out there, and he motion. I want to see you. I want to see you. So we're we talking about Billy Clyde. Billy, no, no, Billy Donovan. Oh, okay. 
And so Billy Dahman comes off the stage, and the stage was over on the right-hand side, and I meet him off the stage. And he said, I'm really looking forward to meeting, working with you. I'm really looking forward to working with you. And I said, are you, you going to take the job? And he said, I'm going to do everything I can to try to take it. And then he didn't. And my opinion is, and I don't know if this is true or not, but I don't think he ever talked to Rick. And, he being? Uh, Billy Donovan. But I think when he talked to Rick, I think Rick talked him out of it. That's what I think. I think Billy, I think Billy wanted because he told me he was he told me he was looking forward to working with me. He, I mean, I I and came when back you say and told Rick. Pat, now you're talking about Rick Patino. Rick Patino. Rick Patino. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I think he I think he uh, wanted to talk get a blessing from Patino. You know, before he took it, and I don't think Patino gave him a blessing. How long do you think John Calipari goes here? I mean, he's going twenty four seven. Well, you know he's going to go for the four years that his son's Son's on the team. So there's four more years. Uh, I think at the end of four years, uh, when his son graduates, I wouldn't be surprised if he doesn't leave with his son. That would be my uh, opinion. But good God, how many years will that be? He's been here. Eleven. And that's That's five or six more than I ever thought he'd last. (laughs) uh, Because this is as tough a job as you can ever have. But he seems Uh, to thrive in what he's doing here. He does. And uh, he's, I'll tell you one thing, he's he's happy. He's, uh, you know, first couple years he wasn't happy. And, uh, but he's happy. And they're. Everybody's treating him right. He's, uh, he's, 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 I mean, he, he could, he, as he says, he's got the dream job of all dream jobs. And, and, uh, I know when I go to practice, he always comes over and sits down and we talk for a few minutes and, and I could tell in a minute if he wasn't, he's, he's happy. He's, Mitch is treating him great. Everybody at the university, he loves the president of the university. I mean, you know, he, things couldn't be better. Where do we go with Kentucky football? Well, I think that uh, I happen to be, as you well know, an eternal optimist with Kentucky football. I've been that way ever since 1954. And uh, I think if they ever got football going here, it'd be bigger than basketball. I know everybody, when I say that, everybody questions it. But you can't have the support this place has in football uh, without that. I think we turned a corner. I, I, I think we turned a corner. I think we've got better linemen. Uh, Derek Ramsey, and I spoke at an event for him and in Frankfurt, and he even admitted. He said, uh, "He said we got better linemen. We got, uh, you know, we got better players, and we need more of them." But he said, uh, "I think uh, he said, if, and and we got an advantage because the East is down this year, uh, so we got an advantage. Oh, we've won seven games. Could you beat Austin P? My God, who ever thought that after the first game? So, uh, hope, uh, you know, I hope it works out." Uh, I, I like Mark uh, Stoops. Uh, I, I love Bob, his brother. I've, I've known Bob forever. Uh, I had Mike, his other brother, at Arizona and uh, got to know uh, Mike there. I love the Stoops family. I think, they, I think they've got a connection to really good recruits in Ohio because of the background of Youngstown. And I think that if we can get to a bowl this year, I think you're going to see the mother load turned on with additional recruits that will come here because, listen, this football facility, Oscar, is the best it's ever been built. I'm, have you been through that new train? Absolutely. That's the best. I've been in every one of them all over the country. There is nothing even close to this. Uh, not in, in, in NFL places. Uh, I wasn't going to ask you this, but you brought it up in all my years here. There's no two people I think of closer in the field of athletics and on the field and the business community, and that is your relationship from 1970. 
for to today, Derek Ramsey? He's like a son to me, as you know. Uh, he uh, he's the uh, he is as good a person. Uh, he and Lee are very close to Pat and I. Uh, he checks on me every week, and then I had a little health issue a few weeks ago, and he called every day. Uh, he's uh, he's just special, um, and uh, as I said, he's like a son to me. And uh, love him like a son, and um, I, I, I just, uh, and as you know, I've carried him <laughs> with me places. Where does Jim Host go from here? I know you're not done. You, you will never stop. You, uh, you have a punch it for being on time. If you say nine o'clock, you mean eight fifty nine. Eight fifty, eight forty five. Fifteen minutes ahead of time. And 15 minutes head time is on time, and on time is late. Uh, so I've never been late to an appointment in my life, uh, any place, anytime. Uh, if I say I'm going to be there, I'm there. Oscar, um, I love every minute of every day, and I don't intend to. I'm deeply involved with the SOAR project. Eastern Kentucky means a lot to me, as it does to you. And uh, uh, I think we got a chance now to help turn it around with the broadband uh, development that we finally got the governor to understand and how Rogers and I have understood it from day one. Uh, so I'm deeply involved in that. I'm, I'm involved in a project you don't even know about uh, with the Urban League in Louisville on a dollar a year to help the pipeline uh, take convicted felons that are nonviolent and create a workforce for them as we did with the arena in Louisville and we put 159 of to work that were unemployables. And that's what I spoke about today at this labor cabinet thing in Frankfurt. And um, so, I, you know, as long as my mind is halfway decent, I'm, I'm going to continue to try to make a contribution. I'm not doing it for money. I'm doing it because it's the right thing to do. And what do you want to be remembered for 25 years now when somebody thumbs through a book and they're reading about Jim Host and the many things you were involved with? I think if I had one answer to that, it would be that uh, he did it with the most upfront integrity and honesty that you could do it with. Uh, it was, to me, it was either black or it's white. If it was gray, it was in the other person's favor. Uh, I never was sued in my life. Uh, and uh, I was in a lot of areas where I could have been sued. I always settled it uh, to the betterment. Uh, I didn't allow myself to be taken advantage of. On the other hand, I tried to look at it from the other person saying, so I think I would like to be remembered as being uh, difficult at times, tough at times, but fair uh, and honest and, and uh, gave everything I had to everything that I always did.